All right, turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 14, if you would. Matthew chapter 14. And uh, <clears throat> we'll start in verse 1. Matthew 14, verse 1, and this is God's word. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers at work within him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, years ago when I came down here uh, to Memphis uh, 30-some years ago, I was running a little business that some of you may know about. And the owner's son was kind of goofing up. The owner lived in Milwaukee, and his uh, like 20-year-old son was goofing up. So he sent him down here to work for me, which was awesome. And he was like, keep an eye on him. Well, this guy would get in fights every weekend, and he he would drum up fights and egg on fights and would come in with cuts and bruises and stuff. He just loved to get in fights. He was a wrestler, and he was just a wild kid. Uh, so he comes down here, and so I, I was kind of following him from place to place, going to these various things, trying to watch out for him. And in one of those situations, he had gotten some guy so angry by the way he was treating his, like his girlfriend that uh, when my boss's son went into the men's room, I saw five guys pooling to go in after him. And I was like, well, here I go, you know. And so I went in the men's room too, and it was, I must say, frightening. I'm not going to tell you the whole illustration because there's another illustration I can use this for. But suffice it to say, I remember standing in the men's room with the knucklehead uh, son of the owner and these five guys, and I was thinking, I'm going to get killed by association. That's the illustration. I don't think it's hard for you to grasp these days that if you are linked to the Messiah, this Jesus of the Bible, if you're linked to the one that the Bible says is the only way, if you're linked to the one the Bible says is the only mediator between God and man, if you're linked to the one the Bible says is the only way God will hear your prayer. Look it up, Isaiah 59. Oh, my granny's sick, doesn't hear. Oh, I'm so sad, doesn't hear. The only way God hears is by the provision that he's made in Jesus Christ. If you are hooked up to the Savior, ladies and gentlemen, then you might be able to understand that any hostility the world has toward this Savior, the world will have toward the followers of that Savior. That's why there's a built-in enmity, and it's even more profound and permanent than that. We'll talk about it as we go on here. But you can see that the... Dang it. This is the, um, 
main idea here. Association with Jesus will cost you your life. And don't worry, there's, uh, there's an upside of that too. We'll talk about it at the very end. So while the book of Luke um, gives us details about Jesus' birth, okay? So if you read the book, the gospel of Luke, we get lots of details about Jesus' birth and angels and all that kind of stuff. It's a different account than Matthew. Um, we see stuff that's not included in Matthew's story, angels and, and uh, uh, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but even in that, we see that, um, that the, the account in Matthew and the account in Luke are hooked to John the Baptist. Um, in Luke's account, Jesus' mother Mary is told by Gabriel, as I said, that she's pregnant. Uh, not only that, but so is her relative Elizabeth. She's six months along. And so we get lots of, lots of details, and a few verses later, the mothers uh, to be meet. Um, and then the birth of Jesus is described in the book of Luke. And uh, then Jesus' uh, very early childhood is very briefly noted. And then, of course, who shows up to launch his public ministry? John the Baptist. Back to our story in Matthew. It starts with a genealogy. If you went to Matthew, you don't have to, but if you went to Matthew chapter one, verse one, it starts with a genealogy. And the reason it does that is Matthew is writing with a Jewish perspective. He's aiming at the Jewish understanding, all right? So he's saying, hey, this is the Jewish Messiah, um, that the, the one who's been predicted, and he's lining up for Jewish understanding. Then he goes on to describe the birth of Jesus and then his parents' flight from the first Herod, Herod the Great. His parents have to, have to go on the run. Remember, Herod the Great killed all the, kids, all the firstborn males who were two years old and under. And Jesus' parents fled, took Jesus with them, and so on. And then, in the book of Matthew, uh, there's the commencement of Jesus' earthly ministry. And guess who shows up on the scene? John the Baptist. Right? So in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist is a, is a very important part from the beginning. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, when it begins, uh, there's John the Baptist. Same thing in Matthew. John the Baptist uh, helps commence uh, Jesus' earthly ministry. And, you know, the same thing happens in, um, in um, John and the same thing happens in uh, 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 Mark. John the Baptist shows up on the scene uh, to commence Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, in fact, in both of those books... Um, you, you know, you remember uh, Godspell? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. You remember that, sort of? All right, that old, you know, really? Wow, okay. Well, anyway, that was a Godspell was a, a kind of a hippie uh, version of, uh, of the, the gospel. And uh, anyway, that's what John the Baptist came to do, was prepare the way of the Lord. We'll talk about that more in a second. All right, so to our second point, um, suffice it to say, uh, Jesus' ministry and John's ministry were intrinsically linked, but not only that, they were running on parallel tracks. And um, so it's no small thing that the execution of John is mentioned in our passage here today. Um, if you'll notice, ladies and gentlemen, I read from uh, verse 1 to verse 13. And if you look at your Bible, most of your Bibles will have like a little uh, a publisher's break between verses 12 and 13, don't they? They might have a little publishing note, Jesus feeds the 5,000. But, uh, you know, that's not in there in the original text. And uh, it's no small thing that, uh, chapter, uh, that verse 13 shows up. Jesus, when he heard about the death, the beheading, the murder of John the Baptist in prison, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. And I will tell you that that is really the thing that attracted me to this passage. There is a shift in the ministry of Jesus here, and the shift happens with the uh, murder of John the Baptist. And again, to our point, association with Jesus will cost you your life. It did with John. And again, there's an upside. We'll talk about it in a minute. So uh, 
three points today. The first one is, uh, oh, dang it. Let me go to here. Yeah, the first one is Herod and John. We're going to look at three pairings of people. So we're going to look at Herod and John the Baptist. Look at verse one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now, at that time is a very broad term. Um, you know, in chapter 13, verse one, it says, uh, that same day Jesus went out of the house. I mean, you have a very specific, narrow uh, focus of time there, okay? This is not, this is very broad. It's a, a hunk of time has gone by. At that time, you know, it, uh, around that time, that's important because uh, John the Baptist has actually been in prison for about a year. Um, and, uh, and by the way, it's not a nice prison either. Um, there are mixed reports as to the conditions of those kinds of places, but I can tell you one thing for certainty, stinky, a very stinky place. I mean, stinky, raging BO, stinky, no bathroom facilities. I mean, a bad place to be. John's been there for a year imprisoned. And the way John the Baptist ended up there is complicated. Uh, Herod here, it says Herod the Tetrarch, um, you know, in verse nine, he's called the king, but he wasn't really a king. He was a tetrarch. And tetrarch's kind of a weird word, but basically, you know, if Memphis, Memphis basically has two mayors, right? You got the county mayor and the city mayor. If there were two more, let's say there were four mayors of Memphis, one of them would be called a tetrarch. Each of them would be a tetrarch, all right? So Herod was, the, was a tetrarch. He, he ruled a quarter of an, an area, not really a king, but that's what he was. He, he, was a, he was a tetrarch and he was under the authority of Rome. So he was part Jewish, part Edomite. Um, he was a Sadducee, but not a believer in the Christ at all, obviously. Um, and he was, a, he was a puppet of Rome, basically. So here's the situation. Here's the flashback story. It's kind of neat. You've got this situation. You've got this account of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the, the gospel writer, Matthew, inserts a flashback. That must be there for a very important reason, wouldn't you think? That if he would put a flashback in at a certain point, that he's got a reason for doing that literarily? Let's look at it. Verse two, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, so he's hearing about what Jesus is doing. He said to his servants, oh, this has gotta be John the Baptist. He's raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Um, so he hears of Jesus' fame and all that stuff. And um, uh, he, he's, uh, oh, one of the guys was like, uh, one of the commentators was talking about his uh, his miraculous energies or his flowing energies or something like that. He, he hears that, there, that something's being done, uh, that deeds are being done. He's, he, he hears that um, supernatural uh, mojo is happening. Let's look at verse th- three and following. For Herod had seized John, bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now let's go back to this funky chart up here. This is, it's really... Uh, it's, it's a little hard to read. Uh, this is the best one I could find. And uh, honestly, it's hard to understand. I mean, if Tammy tells me a story and it has more than three names in it, I completely shut down. Uh, Sally's the cousin of, and she plays soccer with the, I'm like, I, I can't even keep track. All right, so this is very confusing. In fact, I brought a paper chart with me so I can, I can, I can uh, look at it here. Um, the, all these different Herods, you know, you got Herod the Great on top. That's the Herod who was running things when Jesus was born. So that's the Herod, the Herod the Great. He's the one who had all the firstborn uh, boys killed uh, two, two years old and under. Herod had a bunch of wives. The one right underneath his name up there, Miriam, whatever, the second, um, she married Herod Philip. The other d- wife that he had 
uh, excuse me, she had a kid named Herod Philip. The other wife that he had had a kid named Herod Antipas, a couple boxes over, Herod Antipas. Now, um, here's, I got arrows written all over here. Um, Herod, let me try to get it right. Herod uh, Philip, they had a kid, yeah, Philip I. And he married Herodias, they got a divorce, and married Herod Antipas, all right? Now, even weirder is Herod Philip and Herodias had a kid, and that kid married Philip II on the far right, which turned her into the aunt and sister-in-law of her mother. All right, that's all, that's all my brain can handle, okay? Uh, but all to say, basically in this story, that it, it's, it's real goofed up family-wise. Um, it's real goofed up, and what has happened here is that um, uh, Herod's brother got a divorce, and then Herod married the, the, the lady that there was a divorce from, okay? Now, here's the problem. Um, Herod seized John, bound him, and put him in prison, verse 3, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. See, Herod married his brother's wife because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. You can't just divorce your wife and then get your brother's wife and marry her. It's not right. And uh, he's, uh, he's citing Leviticus uh, 18 and 20, and uh, he's doing it. It says that um, when, when John had been saying to him, uh, it's this imperfect tense, so it means that John's saying it and saying it and saying it. So he's in public situation, public situation, public situation. He's saying, that's wrong, wrong, wrong in the house of Herod. And Herodias gets wind of it. She hates it. And uh, under pressure from Herodias, Herod seizes John and, um, yeah, seizes John and binds him and puts him in uh, prison. All right, so uh, let's go to uh, verse five. Though he wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. All right, so he's he's a puppet of Rome and what he doesn't want is an uprising. He doesn't want uh, people rallying in the streets. Uh, that's not very good for politics, by the way. When there are people, if there's uprisings in the city, what do people do? They look at the leadership and they go, why are there uprisings in the city? Uh, they don't want that. And so that, uh, Herod is trying not to have that happen. And so um, he has John, he doesn't put him to death. But in verse six, this shocking thing happens. Herod's birthday party came. And the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. This was all set up by her mother. It was a plot by Herodias. And so she goes, hey, mommy, the guys like my dancing. Yay, Uh, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom, honey. Uh, And she goes, mom, what should I ask for? Ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Bingo, John gets killed. All right, now, um, another thing that attracted me to this whole... um, Oh, there it is. To this passage is this. If you've ever heard this story preached before, what do you remember about it? You remember the girl dancing, don't you? Is that what you remember? And I mean, preachers preach on it all the time about how she goes out there and dances lasciviously. You heard that preached before? Have you? Well, listen to this. This is, you know, you know the name Hendrickson? He's a commentary writer, reformed, blah, 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 blah. Okay, L- listen to what he writes. This is like one of the best commentary minds out there, or was. He's long dead now, but uh, here's, here's what he writes. 
Were they even sober when they watched her go through her rhythmic movements, dancing bewitchingly and seductively? Her glamorous appearance and exotic movements pleased Herod to such an extent that he, losing all sense of propriety and dignity, if he ever had any, and not suspecting the words that he's about to utter, blah, blah, it's like, dude, maybe, but point to it. <laughs> Furthermore, it's all anybody remembers. That she, ding, 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 the dance of a thousand veils, you know. I mean, it's all anybody. And it's, it's just, we might suppose that it was a dude's party and that they were all hammered and they brought a chick out. Um, that, that, that might be, but it's not explicitly written in the passage. So why are we stuffing it in there? It drives me crazy. Anyway, she dances, whatever she did. Maybe she was acting kind of skanky or whatever. Maybe, um, but whatever the case, Herod probably schnockered maybe a little bit. Who knows? But he, he makes this stupid oath, and he says, I'll give you whatever she, you want. And she says, hey, mommy, what should I ask for? And they say, John the Baptist's head. And so that's what happens. Now, uh, the takeaway then, ladies and gentlemen, is not some girl dancing. I would hate for you to go, yeah, what, what did he talk about today? Well, you know, there was that girl that, uh, you know, um, Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 19. We pick the story up here again in Mark's account. Um, Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So you see that Mark's gospel gives us a little different take. Uh, You know, each each gospel writer, they're they're not writing history books to sell to schools, okay? They're each writing an account with their own perspective. And um, Mark gives us a little bit of information that tells us something about Herod, that you know, he feared John. He wanted to put John to death, but he couldn't for the people. He wanted a quiet Herodias. He feared John, knowing that John was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Something about John the Baptist stuck out that was impressive to Herod's uh, soul. Even though he was not a believer, even though he never bought in, even though he never believed on the Christ, there was something about John the Baptist that was unique. When he heard John the Baptist, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So, Herod had a high opinion of John, and yet he seemed to find him to be conflicting. Um, Now, ladies and gentlemen, how do you hear of this this holy God? What what do you think of his messenger, John? Um, What do you think of Christ's messenger, Jim Umloff? What do you think of him? Um, Do you find his message perplexing? Um. You know, I was talking to um, Kyle and Chris Luke, and I've mentioned this to you before, but um, let me just hold up my Bible as an illustration. When you, when you teach God's word, all right, it's, it's not just like teaching math to a bunch of bored students who are yawning, all right? When you're teaching God's word, it's a very unique thing because in almost every room, there are these people. All right, so I look at Richard Loom, and if I do this, I do this, I look at this person, they're always moving their head. They're always moving their eyes behind the person's head. And if I move to go get them, they're like, "Mm -mm, you're not going to get me. 
They're, they're, they're always keeping their eyes from the, the preacher. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I loathe the idea of putting preacher up on the screens. Now, listen, if you have stadium seating and you've got people way in the back and you've got to be able to see them, fine. But in a room like that or a room like this, it undercuts what preaching is, which is a person saying, this is God's word and give me your eyeballs. Want your eyeballs because I'm the messenger and I want to, I want to communicate something divine to your soul. Well, what that does, ladies and gentlemen, is it's perplexing. There are a great many people who don't believe that come in and they go, you know, I don't believe what you're saying, but it's really conflicting. I'm kind of compelled to come back to hear more. It's perplexing and conflicting all at the same time. That, that's a preaching reality, ladies and gentlemen, and it's a reality of the Holy Spirit of God working in someone's heart. Um, it is possible to be near the truth and yet be a billion miles away. Uh, don't turn, but let me just turn to one little thing here. Um, I'm already there, so uh, let me just read it to you. This is First Peter. Um, yeah, concerning the salvation of uh, the prophets who prophesied about grace that was yours. To, uh, oh, Second Peter, what am I doing? Thank you. Um, yeah, 1 verse 10. Therefore, brothers, yeah, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never be far away. Um, that's, that's my, that's my uh, application for you. Make your calling and election sure. Are you perplexed by the message of the gospel? I mean, is it compelling to your soul? Is it draw you in? Even if you're sitting there going, I'm not sure I believe it, but for some reason I want to hear it. I'm not sure I've embraced it, but for some reason it, it rumbles in my spirit. And uh, the, the idea of redemption is very appealing. Uh, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, make your calling and election sure. Be diligent about that. Wrestle with God in prayer and say, God, am I yours? God, uh, have me. God, show me what's true and give me the grace to believe it. All right, let's look at our second pairing, which is John and Jesus. Uh, as I was saying earlier, John's the one who prepared the way uh, for Jesus. Uh, back to our passage here. Um, let's see here. Yeah, um, I told you that, um, oh, yeah, yeah, check it. Um, yeah, um, in, uh, in Mark's gospel, he comes out with a quote, um, and Matthew includes it also. It's a quote from Isaiah uh, 40, verse 3, and let me just whip there real fast. Isaiah 40, verse 3, every gospel writer includes, a, a, includes this in his gospel. Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All four gospels include that, and all four gospels apply that to John the Baptist. And guess what? Jesus does it too. Um, Jesus, you know, um, you, just can, you can just see the importance that the gospel writers have about, about John the Baptist preceding Jesus and preparing the way. Um, John's on a parallel track with Jesus in his ministry, and basically the message is repent, you need a savior. Repent, you're guilty of sin before this holy God. And that's, the, that's the, 
that's what prepares the way for Jesus to come on the scene. And when Jesus does show up on the scene, you know what John the Baptist says? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And if you look at newer translations, it'll say something like, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, look back to chapter 11, verse 2, if you would. And you'll see another awesome uh, thing here. In chapter 11, verse 2, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, folks, John is in prison. And uh, John um, is designated as a forerunner for Jesus. John knows what's going on. And yet in prison, he's going, this is pretty dismal. Uh, I'm a little bit discouraged. Uh, following this Jesus and, uh, and announcing this Jesus is really a, has, has turned out kind of, it's kind of a bummer a little bit here in jail. And uh, he says, um, he, he sends some messengers and says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And here's Jesus' answer. He says, um, go and tell John, what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, folks, um, Jesus goes on to say um, in verse 10, uh, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare uh, your way before you. So even Jesus is citing Isaiah 40, verse 3, and he's applying it to John the Baptist. He's saying that's the one who is going to be my forerunner. He's the one who's going to prepare the way, um, he, and, and, and it's, going to be a, it's going to be a sign. Now, folks, um, notice one other awesome thing about this. I think preachers kind of poo-poo this a little bit. They go, well, John's in prison, and shouldn't he know better? I mean, uh, his mom was Elizabeth, and the, uh, Gabriel came to uh, Mary, and all this kind of business. And, and uh, so Jesus is saying, hey, buddy, you know, uh, pull it together in jail there. Not at all. Not at all. Jesus gives the most tender answer. What is, what's, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he heard what Jesus was doing. He heard about healing. He heard about helping. He heard about divine activity. When he heard about the divine activity, he sent his own disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one who is to come to be sure here? And what's Jesus' answer? Verse five, he says, deed, 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 deed. You wanna know about divine deeds, John? You heard about divine deeds? What Jesus is doing is reading this guy's heart and answering in a way that, that, will, that will minister precisely to John. And by the way, um, at the very end of that chapter, just out of interest, what do the what do the what do people say about about uh, John and, and Jesus? They criticize him. They say John came neither drink, uh, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Son of man, Jesus came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So yeah, they go, John, he's nuts. Look at him and Jesus, drunkard, tax collector, blah, blah, friend of sinners, uh, but deeds. 
All to say, friends, um, Jesus understood what John was thinking and far from giving it some kind of snarky answer, he wasn't like, hey, pay attention, stupid. He gave him a very tender answer. So to summarize all this, both were considered to be prophets, Jesus and John. Both were considered, uh, both, both had disciples. Both had large crowds following them. Uh, both um, were uh, despised by the head of the religious establishment. The, pol- the political figures did not like them. And that, friends, is the whole point of um, verse 13. Uh, so there's a shift in, John's, in Jesus' ministry at verse 13 with the beheading of John the Baptist. Ladies and gentlemen, why would there be a shift in the ministry of Jesus with the killing of John the Baptist? Why do you think? Huh? Foreshadowing. Exactly. Why do you think Jesus would hear that and retreat from there into a boat to a desolate place by himself? Because he's going, okay, all this time I've kept saying, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. Hey, Jesus, turn water into wine. Woman, my time has not yet come. His concern is that his time has not yet come. Guess what he feels? It's not yet come, but he knows it's coming and he feels it acutely. John the Baptist has been killed. And so if, this, uh, if the gospels are a story about Jesus' earthly life and ministry, then ladies and gentlemen, how does it fit into the whole redemptive theater? Is this story merely about a funky prophet uh, who ate grasshoppers uh, and, uh, and a capricious king? Or ultimately, is it a story about engaging with Jesus? That brings us to our last point, our last pairing, Jesus and you. Remember our main point association with Jesus will cost you your life. That's true. When you come to the cross, you come with nothing. When you come to the cross, you don't bring your righteousness. uh, You don't bring your works. You don't bring your good attitude. You don't bring your sincerity. uh, You you don't bring any pride. You don't say, well, you know, (laughs) I've done this and this and this, and here's my resume. You don't bring anything. At the same time, what do you do? When you come to the cross, you bring everything. You take everything and you throw it at the foot of the cross. You throw it at the foot of the Savior and you say, none of this is mine. Uh, I give up all my rights and privileges. I yield myself to the king of all kings. And that's why it's often put in these terms, surrender. It's not uh, somebody handing you the brochure and you say, well, that condo looks lovely. I'd love to go to heaven. No, you, you come to the cross and you say, I surrender. You wave the flag and you surrender all of your life. And that's what I mean by that. Association with Jesus will cost you your life. Might cost you a physical life like John the Baptist could be. Might get your head cut. If you're born in a different part of the world, not pretty little America with the pretty little zip codes and the you know medians and sprinklers and all that. You were born in a different part of the world. You may have your head cut off because of this Christ. It might cost you your life that way. But it costs you your whole life when you come to a a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the great news, ladies and gentlemen. Becoming a Christian isn't like joining a club. You surrender your whole life, but the joy is, ladies and gentlemen, when you give your life to Jesus, you get it back. When you give yourself to Jesus, you get yourself back. You surrender yourself, but what what kind of life do you get back? A redeemed life. A regenerated life, a spiritually regenerated life, a, a life that is anchored in the Savior uh, and, and has its moorings in heaven. You give your life away, but you get your life back and you receive the gift 
the gift, the gift of salvation. Last thing I'll tell you is this. Um, yeah, you, you could lose your life physically. And uh, yes, the world is a dark place spiritually. That is very true. Um, boy, the internet has uh, not only proved that, but has augmented that reality, hasn't it? I mean, it used to be that if some weird perversion in Persia happened, you never even heard of it. But with the internet, everybody's heard of everything. Everything icky, everything torrid, everything slimy, everybody's heard everything. Um, and, uh, and you start hearing it when you're 11. I mean, the world is a very scary place, okay? There is a real enemy, there's real darkness, there's real sin. But here's the good news. Um, I was reading, um, uh, Tammy and I were in Nashville the last couple of days. We just got back yesterday and I was reading some poetry by this guy. Just, I'll, I'll usually bring a little poetry book with me in, at a hotel and we kind of like to not watch TV if possible. And so I was reading this poem and he was talking about, he was, I can't remember where he was, but uh, he saw a, it was in Europe somewhere. He saw a weather vane. You know, a weather vane, usually it's like a rooster or it's a, an arrow or whatever. And he saw this weather vane and the weather vane was... Uh, a, a, a hunting cat. So this cat is, you know, claws out, ready to, hang. and north, south, east, and west were all mice. So they had their little letter on there, but they were all mice. And so this cat is in the wind. And uh, he writes this poem about it because he's, he's looking at it going, that cat is never going to catch those things. But that cat is always going to be chasing those things. Guess what? The mice are okay. The, the, the cat is powerless. Is that not good news? I mean, you look at the sin and the degradation in this world, and you look at the, the assaults on your own person, and you look at, um, you, you look at your own sin propensity and uh, your own disappointment and your own mistakes and all that. Ladies and gentlemen, the enemy is defeated, and all he can do is go and chase the mice, but he ain't going to get you. The good news of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is not only does God redeem us in this life, but he secures us in eternity. And uh, all the cat can do is chase us and look scary, but Christ has us permanently if we're saved. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would um, take my stumbling and stammering and um, let anything that is superfluous or untrue, roll right off of hearts and understanding. But Father, I pray that what is true would penetrate. I pray that the reality of the gospel would seize hearts, uh, comfort them, and um, show them once again the sufficiency of Jesus Christ who died in the place of sinners that they might live and be received uh, righteously before God. We rest in that reality. We thank you for a defeated enemy, O God, and we pray that our hope in heaven would be our hope in this life, and we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you.